morning. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know me, my name is Frank Uli. To those of you who do know me, my name is Frank Uli. <laughs> so I guess my name is the same whether you know me or not. Not sure why I even brought that up. Um, but I wanted to thank the choir. Didn't they sound good? And uh, of course, Glenn on the piano, her keyboard, and Laura Hatt. I just really appreciate uh, her uh, directing it. And you know, of all the things I've done in music, I've never conducted. And <clears throat> I don't know, I just I feel like a little too self-conscious to do that. I don't know how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, this, this may come as a surprise, but public speaking is not something that is natural for me. I'm actually very shy, uh, a bit inhibited, an introvert. And one of the things that, that brought me out of it was I was in a band years ago, and we realized somebody's got to be the front man. And none of us felt very good. So we, there were two of us. We decided between the two of us. But we were so nervous, we wrote things down like on index cards, you know. And we'd say, you know, All right, this next song is about some, is about some, it's about four minutes long, hope you like it. And that, that was the extent. But I got more and more comfortable with that. But, uh, but it's not something that is really natural to me. Now, I know you didn't come here this morning to hear me talk about myself, did you? Okay, good, <clears throat> because we do want to talk about Christmas. But before I, as a way of leading into that, I do want to talk a little bit more about myself. Um, you know, when I was a kid, Christmas was really almost like a magical time, you know? And uh, there was the, you know, the decorations and the presents and the parties, and the presents, and family, and friends, and good cheer, and presents. And there was all that anticipation, mostly for presents. But, but we, you know, we, we always anticipate uh, gifts like that. And, and as a kid, I certainly didn't. Usually there was one special one. Uh, but... Martin Luther uh, once presented his congregation with this thought. He told them that most persons know how to rejoice when they are given a Christmas gift. But how many are there, how many are there who shout and jump for joy when they hear the message of the angel, to you is born this day, the Savior? And I thought about it. Actually, it was a, a few months back when uh, Pastor Pierce was preaching. And it was just kind of something he said as he was reading about uh, the coming of Christ. And he said, and, but now in our time, and he said, and this should cause us to be anticipation. It should be exciting. But I realized, you know, we will say, yeah, the coming of Christ or Jesus died for my sins. And there's not a lot of awe that we have. And I think it, part of it is because of familiarity. You know, we've, we, we've, we've gotten used to it. Actually, I was having this conversation with Tim Staggs just yesterday morning. And I thought, you know, like if, if somebody, if you go into a room and you flip on a light switch and the light comes on, you don't just, ah, oh, you just expect that when you flip the switch, the light's going to come on. Now, I don't know how they generate electricity. You know, if you, I couldn't explain to you how it gets from 
the plant to my house. Or how, when I turn this switch on, this light, and, I, and, and the light bulb itself, how does that work? I don't know. But I'm not in amazement of it. Now, if we had lived 200 years ago, and you walked into a room and did that, you would be ah, astounded by it. And you think of the people who lived in that first century, and the shepherds, uh, you know, as, as Gary and Denise and, and John and Chet recited from Scripture, imagine those guys out there. It was a night like any other night, and yet they had that amazing announcement that this promise that God had promised was actually being fulfilled. And, you know, so there was the excitement, but there's also the newness of it because Jesus, the Messiah, did not do what anybody thought he was going to do. He came in a way that they didn't expect. He said things they didn't expect to hear. He died, which they did not expect to happen. And he rose again, which they certainly didn't expect. So after being a Christian for so long and so many years, we can get a little bit almost too familiar with it. And there's really, that's not any blame on us. It's because that's just the nature of how things are. So, but <clears throat> what I wanted to do this morning, and Jeff actually set the stage really well last week when he pointed out to us our need for a Savior, that the, the depth of our sin is such that we cannot help ourselves. And what I wanted to do this morning is to plumb a little bit in the heights and the depths of who Jesus was, what he came to do, and what that means for us. And maybe in the hopes that it will help generate a little bit of awe, or at least appreciation for us. Uh, this is the Bethlehem candle, and we sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I, I think that is one of the most beautiful of all, melodically, of all the uh, Christmas carols. Uh, and in Scripture, we see it in the Gospel of Matthew, now, Matthew was written to the Jews, or to a Jewish audience, rather. And so he quotes a lot of Old Testament prophecy and shows how Jesus fulfilled it. And Matthew 2 is where we see uh, his quoting of Micah 5.2, which says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And that, those terms from old and especially ancient days that caught my eye. And I thought, oh, here's, here's a good topic. Because I thought of ancient of days, which is a title that is used for God. And I thought, oh, that'd be great, you know, to kind of talk about what that is. Unfortunately, Micah 5.2, when he talks about ancient days, he's not talking about the Messiah, he's talking about his coming forth. So I really wasn't going to get any help from that. But <clears throat> that, is that, can I do something to stop that? No? Okay. Uh, but, this, but this led me to a, a very popular scripture that relates to the Messiah, to what he would do, and there are certain titles and names that are given to him. And it's Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 2, I think we're going to put it up there. I'll read it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promise. And we thank you for the fulfillment of your promise. And Lord, uh, as we stand here <clears throat> in the beginning of our Advent season, we're two weeks in now, and Lord, help, it, help us to understand where we started, where we were, and help us to appreciate and understand what it is that you have done for us. And help us this Advent season, Lord, to really maybe regain some of that awe that we had when we first believed. And Lord, we just, we ask, I just pray that uh, what we say this morning will be edifying, will be encouraging, will be challenging. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Get a little bit from the water cooler here. All right, that very first um, section there, verse, uh, verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And this is uh, actually Matthew quotes this as well in uh, chapter 4 of his gospel <clears throat> where he talks about the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And this idea of darkness and light is we see it throughout scripture. Uh, darkness is usually attributed or compared to judgment or separation from God. And we see light as being deliverance or fellowship with God. Uh, light is used often in Scripture when speaking of Jesus himself. Simeon, if you remember that story, and you want to talk about somebody who was in awe, he was an old man who lived at the time that Jesus was born. And he had been promised by God that he would not die before he saw the Redeemer. And you can imagine that day in the temple, Jesus was being circumcised, and Simeon was there, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him who this child was. And this is what, one of the things he said about Jesus, that he was a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. <clears throat> John chapter 1, in the prologue of his gospel, John says of Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking of himself, said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And even those of us who are believers, we, Jesus called us the light of the world. The Apostle Paul echoed that. So the coming of the Messiah, and here's where this big contrast comes, he would actually usher in the dawning of a new age. Christ's coming is the dividing line between the age of darkness and the age of light. <clears throat> the age of darkness could be marked by the promises of God were being hidden, were hidden in shadows, in types. You know, so many times in Scripture, the apostles didn't understand quite what Jesus was saying until after the resurrection. And there was no permanent remission of sins at that point. There was no indwelling Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and this new age that Jesus ushered in was an age of liberty that had never been experienced by men before. That men could actually walk freed from the bondage of sin. Now, we don't always do it, but we, that potential is there. That we can say no to sin. That we have that kind of power. And it's interesting because even as a culture at least Western civilization, we acknowledge the birth of Jesus in dating our calendars. That's how we date our years. We have B.C. and A.D., B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So, and of course, secularists have tried to uh, eliminate that. They use the, the uh, initial C.E. and B.C.E. Have you ever seen that? C.E. is for Common Era, B.C. before Common Era. But even there, the birth of Christ is still the dividing line. And, you know, I thought about it, you know, would they, would they go so far as to say, well, let's do away with that completely. But with this whole, like, theory of evolution, you know, they have billions and billions of years, and every time they come up with a theory that needs more time, they just add more years to it, you know. So they could say, well, we're about to head into the year 1,347,432,111. And then some scientist comes up with something, oh, no, we changed it. Now it's 3,436,821,200. <clears throat> so they, apparently they don't hate the gospel enough to do that yet, so we're still all right. So the Messiah is going to usher in a whole new age. And then we come to verse 6, which is really, really packed. And it begins with this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. A child is born, a son is given. This emphasizes the God-man aspect of the Messiah. A child is born relates to his human birth, but a son is given relates to his divine origin. God is, the word they use is transcendent. He's above and beyond human experience or being. Yet he would take on human flesh. He would become what they call imminent. He's within our realm. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word is Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is one as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Christ, which, is, which means anointed one, Jesus is not just the Lord's Christ, he's also Christ the Lord. And, you know, we usually speak of children being born to parents, to a couple. But in this case, this child and this son is born and given to us corporately. And even the announcement of the angels when, when they told the shepherds, for unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, tis Christ Lord. Born to you. He's born to us. He's given to us. So there's a corporate aspect of who Jesus is. So what are, just kind of a summary of so far where we've come in looking at the height and the depth of the work of the Messiah. The, the Messiah, who would be God incarnate, meaning God in human flesh, fully human and fully divine, will usher in a drastically new age. And this promise is for those who love him. <clears throat> now the next section we come to in, in verse 6 of Isaiah 9 are names that are given to Jesus, to the Messiah. And we, we many times, this is really true in Scripture, where God's names, the names that are attributed to him, describe who he is. But we use words, describing words, whether they're titles. I mean, you have Alexander the Great. You know, that guy didn't have any self-esteem issues, did he? <clears throat> but we also use, like, adjectives. You know, back years ago, when I was playing in a band, the one where I was reading the index cards, um, we would come in contact with other bands, you know, and there, there's kind of a camaraderie, you know, and you, but some of these bands were just not very good. And we didn't want, you know, we'd hear them play, and you didn't want to be insulting. You didn't want to feel like you were haughty, or at least you didn't want to appear that way. You were haughty, but you didn't want to appear to be. But one of the things that we got into the habit it, it was we'd say, boy, you guys are really unique. You know, the word unique kind of sounds positive, but what unique means is you're singular or you're one of a kind. Yeah, there's nobody that sounds like you guys, that's for sure. Yeah, so that, that was a word we'd use. Of course, then we, we would be playing somewhere and somebody would come, boy, you guys are unique. Oh, thanks. And wait a second. And so we, we do use words in this way. Well, the first title, the first name that we see for the Messiah is Wonderful Counselor. And that, that word wonderful, that's a word we use quite a bit. You know, if somebody does something, oh, that was wonderful, or you're wonderful, or, you know, a painting is wonderful, or something is wonderful, we'll, we'll use that word, meaning that it's good. Of course, even there, depending on how you use the word, it can change. For instance, if you were, if you were running late one morning and you, you, you know, get your coat on, you run into the car, stick the key in the ignition and turn and it doesn't work, you're likely to say, wonderful. But you don't mean it's wonderful. Boy, that sounded funnier in my head. <laughs> oh, well. I thought that was a good... Okay, well, anyway... Oh, wonderful. <laughs> but um, that made me go dry. 
In this case, wonderful means miraculous or a, a supernatural work of God. And it, it doesn't mean like it's magical. You know, when Jesus performed miracles, it wasn't magic. They were signs and displays of his majesty. And so this counselor is majestic. And the word counselor, it means like an advisor. And we're, we're familiar with counselors. Like if, if somebody's having a, uh, you know, some emotional problem or something, they'll, they'll many times will go to a counselor. Or a young couple is planning to get married, they'll go to a marriage counselor. Or if you're going to make a big financial decision, like buying a car or a house, a lot of times you'll get advice from somebody. And even kings will have counselors. Presidents have their cabinets. And an advisor is usually somebody with more expertise or they're more knowledgeable, more, uh, you know, have more insight into a certain topic. And we can draw upon that to get inspiration or to get some direction. And, you know, certainly a king is dependent upon their advisors when they're making an important decision or trying to formulate a plan. But the Messiah, Christ, the wonderful counselor, he doesn't need any advisors. He will serve as his own. It says in, in, first, in Corinthians 1.24, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Jesus, as wisdom incarnate, will act as his own counselor. And the plan that he formulates for salvation is his own. And it, is, it comes from his own wisdom. <coughs> Excuse me. Ephesians 1, 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's active control of all things is governed by the counsel of his will. He does not exercise sovereignty haphazardly, but according to his eternal wisdom. He acts according to his plan for creation. And just as, as kind of like a, uh, maybe a supplemental note, <clears throat> uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, in talking about the plan of salvation, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this plan of salvation, Jesus not only did not take outside advice, but it was hidden. It was hidden from the angels. The prophets who prophesied, were they were prophesying in part, and they really weren't able to piece together everything that was going to happen. And that was by design. So not only did, did Jesus not need or require any outside advice, that plan remained hidden. <clears throat> Our next title, next name, is Mighty God. And these are, this is a description of God. Throughout Scripture, God is predicted or depicted as a valiant warrior. 
That's what, the, what mighty would be. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 3, talks about his splendor and majesty. Psalm 50, verse 1, God speaks with absolute authority. And this psalm says, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And Psalm 45, again, verse 4, speaks of him as being victorious when it says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. So the Messiah, as the mighty, valiant, victorious God, possesses the power to accomplish his divinely inspired plan. It's a plan which extends from all eternity, and only someone with absolute power and authority can accomplish it. And it cannot fail. <clears throat> so again, let's summarize the height and the depth of the Messiah's work, so far we can summarize it that this plan of salvation involves the mighty God entering human history, taking upon himself human flesh, and executing a divinely determined plan that will dramatically usher in a new age. <clears throat> then we come to everlasting Father, Isaiah 9, 6. Everlasting, I think we have a pretty clear understanding. It means eternal, forever. There is no beginning, there is no end. But we don't want to get tripped up on this word father. Uh, most of the time when we think of God as father, we think of in Trinitarian terms of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that isn't what this is referring to here. Uh, the Son is the Messiah, not the Father. Uh, so we're not to take it in that sense. But, and it's interesting because as I was doing some study on this, I, I found commentators took different positions on how to uh, understand the word Father. And I think both of them are legitimate. Maybe both of them are meant to be uh, uh, taken that way. <clears throat> and the one is, as the Father, the Messiah is the author of salvation. Hebrews 5.9 tells us, in being made perfect, he, meaning Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That he is the author of salvation. That he is the originator of salvation. He uh, certainly, his death on the cross is what made it possible. <clears throat> so, Father, in that sense of being the author of salvation. But it can also mean a quality of the Messiah to his people, in that he is as a father to his children. This title refers to the never-ending nature of his care. He's a father forever, eternal. He will never abandon those who are his. His care will never falter. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And interestingly, when Matthew, in his gospel, quotes Micah 5, 2, he actually um, adds something that you won't find in Micah. He refers to Jesus as the shepherd that he would shepherd my people Israel. 
And I think there's a lot in here with that idea of Jesus as the good shepherd, which uh, he refers to himself as in John chapter 10. And in that, Jesus, in verses 7 and 9, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verses 17 and 18, relating to his plan and to his authority as the mighty God, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So if we we're going to summarize so far where we've come in the height and the depth of the work of the Messiah, God incarnate will come to earth to execute his divine plan and purpose by his majestic authority and power that will establish a new age and he will be faithful to meet the needs of all those who call upon him. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I just, just, this just occurred, you know, as we're going through this, any one of these points you could probably spend a month of sermons on. So this is just like a, a, an overview of, of these things. Uh, and I would encourage you, you know, to do some deeper study. But we come to uh, the last of these titles, Prince of Peace. The world today really does not know any kind of settled peace. You know, we may, even as a country, we may have periods of peace, but throughout the world there's something going on. And even those periods of peace we may experience, they're always kind of fragile, you know. <clears throat> but according to, as we, as we back up here in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel the fire. So this plan, this peace that the Messiah will usher in, the instruments of war will be destroyed because they're not going to be necessary anymore. Uh, and this is almost something that is unimaginable to us. <clears throat> that, you know, we strive for peace, but we're not really naive enough to think that it's actually going to happen. There was a number of years ago, I was watching one of these uh, science fiction movies, and it wasn't like a high quality one like Star Wars. It was one of those cheap ones where, you know, as a spaceship is flying, you can see the string, you know, holding it up. And these aliens had this earthling riding in their spaceship, and he was talking about Earth and was talking about all the wars and at least one of these aliens shook his head and said, oh, you silly earthlings. We outlawed war on our planet years ago. And you really, you're going to outlaw war? Imagine 1939, Hitler is about to invade Poland, and his advisors say, Adolf, you can't do that. War is against the law. Oh, yeah. Oh, now what am I going to do? How am I going to take over the world? 
you know, it's like, that's just nonsense, you know, that you're going to outlaw war. We have laws against stealing, yet it still happens. We have laws against killing people, but people still kill other people. And World War I, before it was called World War I, was called the war to end all wars. Well, it wasn't the war to end all wars. And following World War II, we had the formation of the United Nations, which was designed to settle all disputes so there wouldn't be any more wars. It hasn't done that. None of this has ushered in universal or lasting peace. And even in the lifetime of uh, you know, a good many of us here, from the end of World War II, for a good 40 years, the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in what was called a Cold War. And it was called the Cold War because there was no actual fighting that took place. And the reason there was no actual fighting that took place was something that they called MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. That each side knew that if they launched a missile, the other side was going to launch one against, and it was just the devastation was not worth uh, the chance. So, but, so even with that, there was, no, there was no fighting, but there was no peace. And it's been said the best defense is a good offense, and a strong standing army is one way to keep the peace. In other words, if you have a strong standing army, those other countries aren't going to really do anything to tick you off because within, you know, if you, if, depending how strong your army is, their country will become a parking lot, and it's just not worth it to them. But Isaiah 9.5 declares that a standing army will not be necessary to maintain the peace that the Messiah will bring. Even the most hardened of atheists has to admit that that kind of peace only somebody like God could do. You know, it's, it, they would have to at least admit that. <clears throat> so the name Prince of Peace, though, it isn't just talking about military conflict. It's more expansive than that. It's peace with others, and it's peace within ourselves. We're free from our sin. We're not, a, we're not bound by it anymore. And that sin that caused enmity between us and God has been removed. And so we are at peace with God. There's nothing that separates us now. And... This peace is certainly a peace, as we've seen, that the world can't give. And Jesus himself said that. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And it is a peace that is eternal. Now, we're, we're familiar with the gospel. We're familiar with Jesus was born in a manger, uh, he would live a sinless life. He would suffer and die on the cross for the penalty that was due our sins, and he would rise again on the third day. But hopefully we can get a little bit more of a, a deeper grasp of the height and the depth of what that was. And, you know, even, you know, kids will say, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but there's actually, it it's, goes even deeper than that. He didn't merely die to take away our sins as if we're starting off with a clean slate. There's a, there's a word, uh, imputation, 
and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but when Jesus hung on the cross, through imputation, he took upon himself our sins. And God treated our sins as if they were his. And for that moment of time, Jesus was the most wretched man who ever lived. The sins of all, of all men was placed upon him. All of our sins, all of those who call upon the name of Christ, he took all of that upon himself. Not just the sins that had been committed, but those that would be committed. And he became, <clears throat> he took upon himself the wrath, he became sin. And through double imputation, God now looks at us, he takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to us as if it is ours. So it isn't just that our sins are forgiven. We are actually made righteous in the blood of Jesus. And we're transformed. Again, it's not just that our, our slates are clean. We're transformed from children of darkness into children of light. We become the very sons and daughters of God. And that's, that's pretty incredible. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14 we are admonished to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the old is passed away, behold, all things become new. And it is the dawning of a new age. But you know what? That peace goes even beyond just mankind. Adam's sin did not just affect him, and it did not just affect us who are his descendants. It affected all of creation. And the coming of the Messiah actually sets creation free. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus' victory on the cross redeemed not just mankind, but all of creation. Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So our, our final summary here, the height and the depth of the work of the Messiah, God incarnate comes to earth to execute his divine plan of redemption, accomplished by his supernatural power and authority a plan that cannot fail and will bring about peace, both, both peace without and peace within, and translation of children of darkness into children of light. And just closing in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, think about how many things in life can we say are absolutely certain. You know, we can make plans 
But so many things can get in the way and thwart those plans. But with the plan of God, there is, there is no possible way it can ever fail. I heard it said one time that we can be more certain of rising from the grave than we can of rising from our beds tomorrow morning. It is, that promise is that assured because it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I'm brought in mind of Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 begins with the nations raging against God, saying we will break free your bonds over us. And actually it calls that, it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It's vanity. It's useless to think that way. Because there is absolutely no way that God is not going to fulfill everything that he did, that he sets out to do. And it says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Because he has said, I, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And one of the most comforting verses in all of scripture is the very last uh, sentence of that psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, I, I, and just in closing, I want to offer us two challenges. And the first one is, though, even though we're familiar with this story, let's take some time this Advent season to really consider the height and the depth of what Jesus accomplished, what he came to do, and the promise of God, and the idea that this is certain, and it is... It, it, we haven't seen the full consummation of his kingdom, but Jesus has accomplished everything that is necessary for salvation and for his ruling and reigning. And it will happen. And the second challenge is in keeping with the Christmas tradition of giving gifts. Let's not let any opportunities pass us by to share the height and the depth of the coming of the Messiah, with anybody, whether friends, family, co-workers, whoever, let's take that opportunity to share with them and maybe give them something to be in awe about. And, and hopefully, um, hopefully this has been helpful. Um, and I just would like to close in a word of prayer. Well, Lord, we thank you for for being faithful to your promise. Um, Lord, you, you're incredibly faithful. You're long-suffering with us. Um, you have taken us from children of darkness into children of light. You have ushered in a completely, drastically new age, an age of light. And for us personally, that we can be freed from the bondage of sin, we no longer have to sin. We can live righteously in you. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that you took upon yourself our sin and that you gave to us your righteousness. And Lord, you are certainly a wonderful counselor. You are a mighty God. You are an everlasting father. And you are the prince of 
peace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.